try and distill down your book to one core sentence, one core value. And when you figure out what that is, write it on a little post-it note and tape it to your monitor so that every time you sit down to write every chapter, every paragraph, every sentence, you are staring that core value in face. And I'll share with you that sentence. It was to deepen people's appreciation for magic and magicians. Joshua Jay is a magician, author, a lecturer. He has performed in over 100 countries. He's won the top prize in magic. He's done a lot of amazing things. He's been on Good Morning America. He's been on the Today Show. For you, the thing that amazes me and the thing that sets apart magicians at your level from magicians in a diner, as you pointed out, is the storytelling. There is something amazing about someone walking up to you at a party, taking your watch off and making it spin and just doing all these tricks. But you know, on some level, those are tricks. Magic can be so emotional if it's done correctly. And that's what I think people miss that about magic. Everyone's heard great music because it's everywhere. But you have to go to a magic show to see magic or you have to watch it on YouTube. You write about this in your book that sometimes someone will go see a hack magician and say, you know what, I hate magic which is ridiculous. You would never listen to a song and say, you know what? I don't like music. It's completely true. And I'm glad that you recognize that in other forms as well, because it's true in magic. But I wonder sometimes if people outside magic get it on that level. For me, this is what sets apart a great magician from maybe a masterful magician. I'm sure there are many who are technically just mind-blowingly virtuosic, but maybe their shows don't have the emotional component to them. Like my formula when I'm producing events is a heartfelt moment, a good laugh, and a surprise. If we can get those three things, the show will be at least okay. We could build on that, right? And I noticed that like when you watch Penn and Teller, every trick has that. And in your tricks, I'll put a link in the description to your Fool Us appearance, but Joshua does this beautiful trick that he invented for a blind girl. It's a beautiful trick with no explanation. It's a beautiful, virtuosic, amazing trick. I have no idea how you do it. But the story behind it makes it so heartfelt and emotional. Give us a brief description of that one, yeah. Yeah, the backstory is here in New York where I'm recording this with you, I live right across the street from the largest blind center in New York City. So it's a building that has classes and housing actually for sightless people. So in my neighborhood, when you go get coffee and donuts and whatever else, you're just seeing sightless people everywhere around you and you're helping them cross the street and there's some in my building, you befriend them. And I realized one day that magic is something that the blind will just never experience. It's like painting or sunsets. It's just something they'll never see as we see because they can't see it. So I asked the question, would it be possible to create a trick that someone who is blind could appreciate? And that was the jumping off point. And now we jump ahead several years because I'm developing this, of course, and trying to perfect it. I end up coming up with a trick that essentially is designed to fool your mind rather than your eyes. And that trick became what I call out of sight. And it's a card trick in which I recount perform a true story of performing for somebody at one of my shows who couldn't see. And so you have to fool their mind and put the cards in their hands. It was just a tremendous experience to go on Penn and Teller's show and do it for them. And they were so sure that I had to switch decks to accomplish it. And I did not switch decks. I love it. So I wanted to ask you about the way we study music classically and in the jazz world is we take it and we break it into little bits. 
and those bits have names and then the groups of bits have different names. There's melody and harmony and they interact in different ways. And there's a theory. People know that music theory is a thing. Is there such a thing in magic? Is there a way to sort of construct tricks from an abstract framework? I mean, yes, we're always constructing tricks. So we have a brilliant mind in magic and he won't be known to people outside of magicians, but there's a guy named Darwin Ortiz. And lots of magicians write what we call magic theory books, basically books about what you're talking about, but analogous to magic. And most of those are a pretty bad combination of like magic self-help, like you got to practice hard, you got to do it, kind of a pep talk, or rehashing what's already been said a million times in a slightly different way. But Darwin Ortiz has written two books in the 90s and maybe early 2000s that are seminal works that I think will be remembered for years to come. One is called Strong Magic and one is called Designing Miracles. And it's full of just this sort of thing. These are actually new structural developments in how we can create magic tricks. And there are those sorts of things like how surprise decays with time, how an initial condition, say, show a deck of cards inside a box and a moment later show nothing inside a box. That's an initial condition and an after condition. And the time that goes by after the initial condition before you reveal the after condition is commensurate with the reaction of the trick. If I show you a deck of cards in a box and I wait three minutes and tell a story and then show it empty, it's not as strong as opening the box, closing it, and immediately opening it to show the deck is gone. So we have endless amounts of that sort of structural change and structural codifying of terms. So yes. That's really amazing. I guess I know intellectually that the Magic Castle has a huge library and that magicians that really your currency is books, right? I mean, like magic comes from books, which is, again, this is like a non-obvious thing because I think people who are just casual magic fans just assume you guys either have magical powers or have learned tricks from wherever. But it's a very similar thing where you study masters and you learn from it. How old is magic? I mean, the joke is that magic is the world's second oldest profession, right? Next to prostitution. Behind that joke is a very serious admission, which is this. It depends how you're going to cut magic, how you're going to slice it. At its core, magic is about a belief, right? And there's a religious impulse in all of us. It's what made cavemen look at the stars and write on walls. For as long as religion has been around, one could say there has been a magician. It would have been called a shaman in some cultures. It would have been called a fakir in other cultures. It would have been called a priest in other cultures. But yes, the magician role to do the impossible to cast spells has existed since we first had impulses to believe things that were unprovable. It wasn't until around 1584 with a book called Reginald Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft that we separate black magic from what's so-called white magic, entertainment magic from ritualistic magic. So it just depends how you're going to define magic, how I answer that question. But there was certainly magic tricks being performed in ancient Egypt. So there are cultures that have magic tricks and things with a deceptive quality in them going back to the dawn of civilization. That's amazing. Is magic different all over the world? Yes, it's very different around the world. And it depends where you are to how it looks. You know, I remember my first tour, I was about 17, 18 years old, and I went to 
Argentina and magic had a tango vibe to it. Everything was fluid and daring. And then I went to France and everything was fancy and complex. And then I went to Spain and it's loose and casual. And in Japan, magic is totally different than Western magic. You know, in Japan, it's all about the object, the prop. There's no ego from the performer. The performer is often removed from the trick. But I'll tell you something, as time has gone on and the internet has emerged as the preeminent force for how you learn magic, it's sort of whitewashed everything. It's sort of made everything one similar shade of vanilla. And now that all magicians around the world learn from roughly the same teachers, largely Western, magic has a very samey feel to it. And I'm finding that a lot of the interesting culture of magic is going away, which is really a shame. Yeah. I wanted to talk about Magi Fest, Vanishing Inc., and the podcast that you have actually dropping today. So I've already subscribed. I've already given it five-star review, which I encourage everyone to do. And also, while you're at it, maybe give Book Society a five-star review, too. But yeah, tell us about those things. So you're not just a magician. You're also an entrepreneur. You run Magi Fest and Vanishing Inc. Can you tell us what that's like, what those are? Yes. For anybody listening, it would mean the world to me. I think you know from this podcast how hard people work to make something great for you and to bring it to you for free. So yeah, it would help me and it would be greatly appreciated if you went to the How Magicians Think podcast. It is obviously not the audiobook of my book. This is a podcast that is jump off point of all the things we're talking about today and much more. We'll make it really easy. There'll be a link in the description. Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. So the other side of what I do, I perform, of course. And the other side of what I do is I am a co-owner with my best friend, Andy Gladwin, of a thing called Vanishing Ink Magic, which is now one of the two largest magic online retailers in the world. And we sell downloadable videos, magic tricks, magic books, DVDs, these sorts of things to other magicians, resources for magicians to improve. And this eats up a big part of my time. And it's a huge part of my passion is improving the craft of magic. And so, yeah, if you're curious about magic, vanishinginkmagic.com, and you can see lots of videos and we have lots of free gifts over there and stuff. Magi Fest is one of the oldest magic conferences in the country. It is 89 years old. It will be 90 in January. And my partner and I have run this for the last 10 years. And Magi Fest is kind of an amazing, life-changing weekend of shows, panel discussions, and that sort of thing that I help curate and run. Amazing. The reason your publicist put us together was to talk about your book, which I've mentioned, but let's just do with the official promo version of it, which is Joshua Jay is the author of a new book. It's called How Magicians Think, Misdirection, Deception, and Why Magic Matters. I'm holding it right now. It is just a beautiful book to hold and to look at. And that is something that I really appreciate in a book. And it's 52 essays that Joshua wrote about questions that people ask him at magic shows or in his life as a magician. The astute listener will understand the significance of the number 52, which obviously is a deck of playing cards. It is structured similarly to how music works in that you could definitely just pick one up and read any of them. They're beautiful little essays. So can you talk to us a little bit about the process maybe of writing that book? So I know we got into the weeds a little bit about the proposal, but just give us the like 10 minute beginning to end. I had an idea to write a book and now it's a book. So it's two things, one you know about, and one I think you're going to find particularly interesting because you mentioned before we started that you have an interest in baseball. So the first thing was I read How Music Works, and I just thought, oh, this book is beautiful. And by the way, you said how nice my book looks. 
one of the things I love about how music works that we didn't even touch on is I do think it's one of the most beautiful books that I've ever read. And it's just so beautifully designed. It feels like a, a Japanese wabi-sabi influence on the design. It's sparsely photographed, not overly so, but the colors and the font and everything about it is just so darn beautiful. So that's a big compliment to how music works there. So I read this book and I thought I want to do this, but for magic. The other thing that happened was when I initially sold the book, I was sort of all over the place. I was writing in circles. I couldn't get the scope under control. So I reached out to my friend who's a Houdini biographer, but also one of the great baseball writers of the modern era, Joe Posnanski. And I said to Joe Posnanski, you've had best-selling books. Help me out here. What should I do? And he gave me one piece of advice, which wasn't original with him. He was given the same advice. He said, try and distill down your book to one core sentence, one core value. And when you figure out what that is, write it on a little post-it note and tape it to your monitor so that every time you sit down to write every chapter, every paragraph, every sentence, you are staring that core value in face. And that turned out to be my North Star. That turned out to be exactly what reined me in and kept me focused. And I'll share with you that sentence. It was to deepen people's appreciation for magic and magicians. That's it. I feel like magicians are not respected, that most people on the street don't respect magic as an art form. They don't think of it as self-expression. They don't think of it as a beautiful way to share wonder with people. To them, it's just a diversion or a puzzle to be solved. And I hope that the people who read this book, after they're done reading it, think of it as more than just a puzzle or something that you try and bust the magician doing. So in short, that's how it came about. I was very lucky. I was on a tour at the time that I was writing most of it. And while I was very stressed saying, how can I tour and write a book? I actually think it was very meaningful to be very close to the subject matter on stage every night and then walking off stage or between shows writing about that experience. It put me so close to the material. It truly was such a pleasure. And then because of various delays and then COVID, the book sat for like two years, just sort of in purgatory working with my editor. And so much time for reflection really improved the book. That's amazing. I did not realize that it had sat in COVID purgatory, it seems very present and very of the moment, which I think is a good indication that if you're listening to this podcast in 10 years, this book is completely fresh and you can just pick it up. It'll make total sense. One of the things that I loved in the book, when I was working on my own book, this was my original idea that I'm not probably going to do, but you did interviews with great magicians, the magicians that everybody can name, you know, David Copperfield, Penn and Teller, David Blaine. Did you have any favorites? Did you have any insights from those interviews that you want to share? Yeah, I'm really happy with all three of those sections because when lay people do quote unquote think pieces on those magicians, they get so wrapped up, in my opinion, what I'd call the window dressing, the persona David Blaine puts out, or capitalizing and spending pages on the decision for Teller to be silent and pen to speak, which is really like the gateway, right? That's the first thing you talk about, but it's very much not where you need to end up when you're dissecting what makes Penn and Teller great. That's just scratching the surface. So I can't say which of the three is my favorite section. I like different things about all three. Let me give you a couple insights on each one. Teller is the best to interview because Teller is so insightful and he's an open book. I did not get the impression ever that Teller was being guarded or playing with his legacy. When you talk with Teller, he wants to talk craft and he's very vulnerable. He will tell you about 
pieces in their repertoire that he doesn't like as much as the ones he does or the failures along with the success. David Copperfield, it was, of course, my idol as a kid. He is the most famous living magician, such a great artist and such great work ethic. And I interviewed him on his private jet, such a surreal experience. And he was so generous. And what was clear to me, he's probably the biggest victim of like puff pieces and quick things and visually driven articles that he was so hungry to have a truthful think piece that I was so conscious of my time. I said, you know, we'll just take 30 minutes, 40 minutes. And he was like, no, we're doing this until it's done. And we went on for hours, just hours. And he's such a perfectionist. And I can relate in my own work to this idea of taking a trick and working on it for years. And it shows. And it's why his show is so great. And then David Blaine is the weirdest of the three. And I really wanted to impart, and I think I do, that David Blaine is not playing a weird character. That's really him. He is an odd, odd guy. I don't want to spoil it for readers, but basically the end of that chapter, he says, I've got to go now. I'm about to jump out of a plane. And another journalist sort of picked on me a little bit to my face and sort of said, like, there's no way that happened. I've been interviewing people for 20 years. There's no way. I don't know how to make them believe me, but David would call me. I mean, he's a weird one. He Instead of like several days of long hours, long interviews or shadowing, he would like call and then say, I got to go. I got to order lunch. I'll call you back. We would do like little 10 minute bursts all over the town and in planes. And truly, that was true. What he wouldn't tell me is he was training to do his most recent stunt, which is being floated by balloons into the air and then letting go and falling. And he was training secretly for that stunt. And he would call me on his ascent. And so it was true. So this journalist be damned, that really was a true thing, even if it was perhaps unbelievable. But David Blaine is fascinating and pushes himself and his work to the furthest reaches of what's possible. And that's what I tried to capture in that piece. One of the great, the amazing things I learned about David Blaine from your book, I don't think I'm giving anything up because it's in your book, but some of the stuff he does, the magic trick behind it is he does it. It's not a trick. He really is doing it. And he blurs the line between the real and the illusion. And that's very special. That's amazing. Do you find any similarities between the act of writing and the act of designing a magic trick? Do you think about similar things as one informed the other for you? Very much so. And it comes back to something you said earlier. We're all just storytellers, right? And magic tricks are stories. And they adhere to most of the laws of storytelling. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's conflict and hopefully resolution. And so magic is storytelling. So my magic makes my writing better. And I hope what I've learned about writing is helping my magic as well. Well, I have to let you go. I have two more questions for you. First of all, the most important question is, I know you're doing a big tour for this book. Do you want to tell us about the tour? Sure. And you can follow me on Instagram. You can find a link to the complete tour dates. I think there's 36 and there are more being added all the time. But there's a good chance if you're in the United States, I'm coming to you and not just the big markets. We're going to El Paso, Texas and West Palm Beach and four or five small cities in New Jersey. So no matter where you are, I hope you'll check Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Chicago, too many to list. Yeah, I'll link to your Instagram for sure. And most importantly, are you doing a promo event at the Magic Castle? I am December the 5th. So I'm doing December 3rd is at Hollywood Forever, which is open to the public. And December 5th is just to Magic Castle members, a book event. So if you're in the LA area, and I know you are, I hope you'll come out to see me on December 3rd. 
Oh, I will be there. There's a section in Joshua's book about the Magic Castle. If you have not been to the Magic Castle and you're in LA and you have an opportunity to go, it is a once in a lifetime experience. You have to absolutely do it. We've mentioned so many books. I usually end by asking people to recommend two books, but I think we've already done that. All right. Thanks, Joshua J. That was a blast. What a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Our guest next week is Teokas and Ghost Horse. We're reading The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere by Paulette Stevies. There's a link on the Book Society website in the episodes page. If you want to read along, I recommend it. Also, that episode is going to be totally kind of out there and amazing, and you're going to love it, and you don't really need to read the book to understand it. But it is a really interesting book, so go for it. This episode was produced in conjunction with the Miami Book Fair. The Miami Book Fair of 2021 is the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages. So obviously that's a place where people who are fans of book society would want to be. Also, they're looking forward to sharing their work and their thoughts and ideas. It's a place where people go and talk about ideas. It's awesome. It's amazing. I can't wait to go. You can learn more at MiamiBookFair.com. They're at Miami Book Fair on Instagram or probably everywhere. And the hashtag they like is Miami Book Fair 2021. We'll see you there. I want to do a little experiment and see if we agree on what the best bagels in New York are. I am a born New Yorker who's moved. You are a born outside New Yorker who has moved to New York. So on three, we're just both going to say what we think the best bagels in New York are. One, two, three. Brooklyn, Brooklyn Bagel bagels. Company. We did say the same thing. Brooklyn Bagels. I can't believe you know, it. Brooklyn man. Bagels is right around the corner from me. Wow. That's a deep cut. <laughs> All right. <laughs> to you listeners that don't know how rare that is, there are genuinely hundreds of options of what people say is their favorite bagel. And let's be fair, there's probably 25 front runners. But I think for a lot of people, Brooklyn Bagels isn't even a front runner. And the fact that we both named that is crazy. So that was a little bit of a magic trick I think we just did. Mm-hmm.